Greetings to all you out there in podcast land. This is Adam Voigt, and you're listening to The Aristotle Project. The Aristotle Project works to bring back ancient wisdom for the modern world. We do have original thoughts and our own philosophy separate from Aristotle, but unless you understood Aristotle, you wouldn't understand anything we have to say that's original. So... We created this so that you could get, catch up with us someday. But along the way, Aristotle is quite a roller coaster ride. So buckle up and we're on our way. Now that we've looked at Empedocles, we have an example of an ancient cosmology and philosophy that is profoundly similar to the modern world. All right. Things evolve out of primitive uh, natural forces and material without any direction from God. Aristotle has a lot of sympathy for this, and he sees Empedocles as on the same sheet of music in many ways. In spite of how agreeable Aristotle finds Empedocles' work, he has a lot to differ with it. And Book Lambda is where this comes out. Book Lambda takes the idea of substance and then brings it out into the cosmos as a whole and to God. And it's a very weird idea of God and a very weird cosmos that we see. So I hope you'll enjoy this next and perhaps final series on the metaphysics with Book Lambda. Okay, Ada, thanks for coming back down to our studio again yeah. for another episode. Mm -hmm. So this episode, I've decided since in the last few days that uh, this will be our last episode for the metaphysics. Uh, we finished off at uh, chapter 7 of book Lambda, right? But I think we covered everything. Uh, eventually, we're going to do a whole other uh, series in doing the metaphysics in more detail because we could do it but I think I, I think we're good for just a general overview before we move on to other stuff but this episode is going to be very special a long time ago I said I was going to spring a really crazy question on you that's totally original and that no one else as far as I know has ever asked while reading Aristotle or any other book and this episode is going to be all about that question. So in order to really ask this question and have it be meaningful to you, we're just going to skim over everything we've covered thus far. And just, we're going to focus on the problems with Aristotle. Like what I think he got wrong. And you disagree with quite a few things that Aristotle said. And I did too. I didn't always mention it, but this episode we're going to summarize it all by saying what he got wrong and try to like ask each other, well, what would, how would we do it? Or maybe he's doing the wrong thing. Uh, I think he's doing the right thing, but I would do it differently. So that's my whole point. Mm. All right, so I don't know where you stand. Uh, do you think he's doing the right thing, or do you think he should totally do a different thing? Do what? Like the science of being qua being, you know? You don't have to answer it right now. If you have an answer, you can say it. But uh, Yeah, well, that's, that's true. Um, and in fact, you can develop what you, just a suggestion that you would have for anyone thinking of trying this. In the course of this episode and that's what I'll do too all right so now uh, unless you have a question or something like that to say we're going to start with our summary you fine with that okay so long ago 22 episodes ago we started with book alpha chapter one and in these early uh, chapters the main problem that I found was the dis 
his conception that theory and practice were different in a particular way. I think we agree that there's theory and there's practice and there's two different things, right? But Aristotle seemed to think that theory was inherently good, whereas practice is and production, right, are not inherently good. And therefore, so you remember how that worked? No. Okay, so the idea is that practical and productive knowledge is you is good for the production of something which is different from the knowledge, right? And so we only value the skill of house building because we like houses. And not conical structures. Yes, that's true. And so he said, well, but there's some kinds of knowledge that are better because we don't value them for producing anything. And he thought that theoretical sciences were this way. And for him, theory was uh, physics, metaphysics, and uh, mathematics were the only ones that he spoke of, but there could be others. So that's one thing I found kind of difficult. And I think that um, also the conception that productive and practical knowledge doesn't, isn't inherently good. Um, and it's hard to tell. Uh, like, remember, we talked about how cats love catching mice. And they don't necessarily do it to eat mice. I think they think they do. It's just they don't actually need mice anymore. So. Yeah. Well, and humans hunt as well. And there's the common bumper sticker and t-shirt and hat that says, born to hunt, forced to work, right? Or something like that, right? And that seems to, uh, if Aristotle was a hunter or a fisherman, he would say that hunting and fishing were inherently good. And that's the way most hunters and fishers think. And I assume that the cats believe this as well, or they behave as if it were true. Don't think about it, but yeah, but they behave as if it were true. Like very often, they'll catch a mice, mouse, and they'll just leave it. So why do they do it? Well, they don't give a reason for it, but we're trying to explain it. So I think that's this is. Uh, I mean, this doesn't undermine his arguments. Everything he says, besides this in Book Alpha, I think is true. I think is completely true, right? In book alpha. Um, but this, I think, is only a minor problem, but as you read deeper in Aristotle's books, you find that this just gets bigger and bigger. And then when you look at evolution, then all of a sudden, you know, eventually we're going to talk about this and it's going to be a big deal. But right now I just want to call attention to it. And uh, although you can say something if you want, but uh, Anyway, so he says that metaphysics is the highest theoretical science. But um, he doesn't... Are there any other? Well, like the other theoretical sciences are physics and math. And there could be others. You know, but those are the only two that he mentions. But in another book, which we'll get to eventually, he says that the highest science is politics. Because it's a skill that can be learned and it's the highest good because if you have a good political unit a good nation at peace and prosperous then you have everything that you could want but he still thinks he, he, there's no place in his work where he really faces this statement that he makes in the ethics with his statement that metaphysics is the highest knowledge. So, anyway, but that's, uh, and there's also, he says that theology is the highest science. It's a theoretical science, but I don't know if that's, uh, anyway, I think we said enough. But in Book Alpha, he looks at the four causes and says that all the four causes are unified by substance, which is the subject matter of the supreme theoretical science which is first philosophy or metaphysics. So that's the end of book alpha. And then he goes to the next book. We skipped beta. 
but we went to Gamma, and in this he talks about, well, what is this science? So what is the, the science that he's talking about? What's its subject matter? There's uh, like, methods? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a universal thing that can explain like everything. Yeah, that's uh, true. It's the most general science. And it's the best one, the most inherently good. And it's subject is being. That's true, being quay being. Yeah. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. true. So that's uh and it's also what God thinks about all day. That's a really neat thing. And we'll and uh but um uh, so that's one thing he talks about. And I, you know, I, I agree with his conception of the science. And then he goes into the presuppositions of the science, which are the three laws of thought. And they're theoretical. They're the most general principles. And they're the, uh, the uh, most good to know because they are presupposed by everything else. And just thinking about them is, they're so simple and self-evident, according to him. So that's what he says this science is. And do you think that that's, uh, that's what the highest theoretical science is? Like, assuming we're talking about just theoretical science. You don't have to agree that theory is better than practice. But if we're talking about theory, is that the highest theoretical science? Being qua being. Is that really what it is? What is a theoretical Well, it's something which is just, well, he defines it as knowledge, which gains its, its purpose is not to produce things, but rather to simply know things. Uh, well, then, yeah. So like a mathematician doesn't make numbers. He just knows numbers mm -hmm. or she, you know. And then uh, the person who knows about, uh, what's the other one, nature, physics, doesn't produce nature. They simply look at what nature is and explain it. They don't produce natural things. Natural things, by definition, produce themselves. Yeah. So that's what... Uh, a theoretical science is. Now we don't think of theory and practice in this way. We think that you know a scientist should produce something. I mean they produce the facts. Yeah but they could also produce um, invent things. Uh, you know like create well, a new kind of well, fusion yeah, reactor right? Like how to make I figured out how to make a candle. Yay, I've invented that. Yeah. Um, I did produce something, but I have to produce the knowledge to yeah. make it. Yeah, we talked about that. Purely theoretical people who don't care about producing things, they produce knowledge. Yeah, which then, well, with, after they do that, you know, Aristotle thinks so. But after they do that, then that allows people like Thomas Edison to invent light bulbs. Like Thomas Edison wasn't like, you know, Einstein or anything. Invented, like the kite or something. Uh, no, he didn't. Uh, okay. But he, uh, uh, oh yeah, the kite. Well, you may be thinking of Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin was an American politician who discovered that lightning was electricity. Not the kite. Yeah, and he, he invented uh, the... Uh, what is it called? The uh, the lightning rod. rod. Yes, based on that knowledge. So someone else discovered electricity and explained the laws of electricity and how it functioned. But that allowed a Ben Franklin to think, well, I bet lightning is electricity. If so, it should be possible to uh, deflect it and like into a lightning rod and cause it to go to ground without destroying buildings. So that made possible that. That's productive. So in the modern era, we found that Aristotle has, has distinguished between theory and practice and defined them in a way that doesn't, that's not useful. 
you know, and it leaves out a lot. And we're going to go into this a lot more. But I think that being said, I think there is something, you know, to how he defines metaphysics in book Gamma. And uh, we'll talk about this after we finish the summary. And that's what we'll focus on. So the content of the science is deeper, more deeply discussed in book Zeta. So we're going to leave book Gamma and go to book Zeta. And in it, he talks about, well, uh, the science of being qua being studies being specifically and the strict sense of being, the most central sense of being that it looks at is substance. All the other senses of being are oriented, oriented towards substance as the primary meaning. Just like a medical book and a medical clinic and a medical tool and a medical drug uh, all point at the health of human beings as their primary sense of medical. Like medicine is the production of health in humans, right? Yeah. And all so all these other senses of being point towards substance. And that's what the science of being qua being studies. How does everything else point towards substance and what are the types of substance? How are they differ from each other? How does a living creature differ from an atom? How does an atom differ from a molecule? How do molecules differ from planets and stars? All of these things are substances in Aristotle's view, but they're different. And uh, so that's what he's uh, looking at. So he says in book Zeta, he says substances are not universals. They're not genera. Mm -hmm. They are either, there's two different senses of substance. One is uh, form or essence. And then there's another, which is the form and matter joined together. So I ha am a composite of form and matter, and I'm a substance. But that's one sense of the substance. The other sense of substance is my essence that makes my matter into me. That's the substance of the substance, right? So... That's what he talks about. That is really all that Book Zeta is about. Saying that, you know, substance isn't a universal, but it's something that's in something that makes it a unified thing. Right? It's not just a big pile of junk. It's just like love. Yeah, it's like Empedocles' love. And Aristotle recognized that love was substance in many ways, and that it was a very weak and preliminary explication of substance, but at the same time, it's easy to criticize, you know, once you've done the full work. And that's what Aristotle's doing. So, uh, that's book Zeta. And so that is, I think, pretty legit. That's a pretty legit science. You know? It's, um, um, so, What's this science is, uh, what's, what's interesting is, before we go into book Lambda, I want to talk about like how that's a legit science from a modern perspective. And maybe someone else could disagree with what I'm about ready to say, but this is just my preliminary uh, definition. And to say this, I'd have to say that what he's doing in Book Zeta is he's reverse engineering our fundamental ways of making sense of reality. You know what, the, what, what does that mean? Does that make sense to you, that phrase? It's like understand, like reverse engineering is when they take something and like figure out how they, it works, how the, what the scientists or engineers were thinking yeah. when they built it, like what's it made out of, why yeah. was it made. Yeah. yeah, so it's um, so when you, we're doing this, we are like the way in which I mean that is our brain and our mind. And we're not talking about our brain. If you want to look at somebody's brain, you can just 
take it out of their head after they die and look at it, you right? In their mind, right? Yeah, we're looking at the mind. So the mind, I guess, is sort of like the software that runs on our brain hardware, right? We're looking at the software. We're not, I mean, someone, I think it's interesting to think how software can run on hardware. And not every kind of software can run on every kind of hardware. You can't make an Apple operating system run on a normal computer. It has to be Apple's hardware, right? So, so, and th that's true of humans too. But what we're doing here, we're not, you know, it's not going to help you do metaphysics to cut open somebody's skull and look at their brain. What, well, what is going to help metaphysics? You are, you, what you do is you put input into someone's brain and then you see what the output is, right? Oh, I saw tests like that at school. Yeah. Have you ever seen anybody do that with a computer or any kind of, uh, yeah. like what? What, what? what do they do? Um, uh, I saw this like, thing that we were going to go on a field trip, but then we ended up not going. So I like watched all the videos for it, but um, it was like, they were like trying to like test an AI system. Mm-hmm. And, or sorry, no. They were like, okay, well, they had a computer, and it was, like, they were feeding it inputs and trying to, like, teach it, like, machine learning, but, like, for an AI or something, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, and they were, like, putting in, like, stop signs for it, and, like, you could put in, like, nine different pictures of different, like, shades of stop signs and things, mm -hmm. and then it, like, decides if it's a stop sign, it's not a stop sign. So when you guys put a like stop sign in, it sees the stop sign. Is that what you're talking about? Um. Well, you know, it, like okay. Or are well, you talking about like what decision? Reverse reverse engineering means you have a thing that functions in a certain way, right? And then you're trying to figure out how does it do that. Yeah. Well, first you have to actually define what does it do, like. You know it does something. What is it doing? What is it trying to do? Maybe you don't understand what purpose this thing is serving. So reverse engineering can include research as to why this thing was made. But then it also includes research into, well, what's going on when we, when, you know, when we show a picture of a stop sign to this camera camera transmits that video to a computer, what does a computer do with it? You know, how does it break down the image? You know, and how does it process the data derived from that image? And, uh, you know, like the, um, you might, that, that's pretty difficult. You know, if you're doing that with a, uh, an AI, boy, there's a lot of tinkering that needs to be done. You know, how does it even see color? You know, how does it see color? How does it make out shapes? What if you have two, one shape in front of another and they're the same color? Would it even see it? Does it use color to define shapes? Or is it like a human being that it can see, you know, if there were a gray thing in front of this wall, the same color as the wall, we could see it. But a computer might not be able to see it. I mean, you'd see the shadow. Yeah, so that's part of... What you would do with reverse engineering is you're providing input to a system and then seeing, well, what's the output? And then you create a hypothesis about, well, this is what was going on inside their head. They're classifying things by color and using color to define shapes. You know, and so uh, that's what uh, a reverse engineer for such a device would be doing. So Aristotle, it seems to me that Aristotle is trying to reverse engineer our brains. And so what he's doing is he's providing input. So we're seeing how it comes out? Yes. What comes out? And he's saying that the fundamental unit of making sense of things that our brains have been endowed with, either by God or by evolution, is substance. And that everything is oriented towards substance. And it's kind of like uh, when I was studying programming, uh, we learned Java. 
which is a computer language. Now the computer language of Java has something that's like substance. It's called the object. Object is the most general class. So there's classes and there's methods. And so the most general class is the object. Everything's an object. And so objects have methods, but methods don't have objects. Like every method that's defined has to be defined with respect to whatever object has it. But you can define an object and then not have any methods as of yet, right? And that makes sense. So in that sense, an object is more substantial than a method. Methods are what you can do with an object. Mm -hmm. Like so, like if a ukulele is an object, then strum or play is a method that a ukulele can do. You know, and uh, any musical instrument, if it's a member of the class musical instrument, will have a method that's like play to play that musical instrument because that's what makes a thing a musical instrument. So what is a thing? What is the thing, the most general concept of the mind that makes it a mind? And Aristotle, I think, is saying it's knowing about substances. And uh, being able to say that, okay, there's substances, and then the substances have other categories. And the substances can be generated or destroyed. And then they can have their qualities change, and they can change in quantity, but they're changing in quantity while remaining the same substance. But you wouldn't say that if a substance was destroyed that there's still the same number of substances, right? Yeah. Well, there's like one less substance, you know, but like that's, so those are the sorts of inputs and outputs that the mind as a computer, a naturally evolved computer, or perhaps divinely created computer, is giving us. We're putting in inputs and then getting outputs. That's what the entire book of uh, the metaphysics is all about, uh, up to book Zeta at least. And I think that's a legitimate, uh, legitimate uh, um, science, even in the modern world. But what kind of science is it? It seems a theoretical science. Um, but is it, uh, is it empirical science? Empirical? Yeah, so there's two kinds of sciences. In the modern world, we divide sciences up differently from how Aristotle did. Remember how Aristotle divided all sciences up into theoretical sciences and productive sciences, yeah. right? So in the modern world, we think in terms of empirical sciences and formal sciences. So formal sciences deal with relations among ideas or definitions. And that's like mathematics and logic mm. and grammar, right? And computer programming, I suppose, I don't know, or you know, certain sciences are weird like that, like game theory or stuff like that. But then empirical sciences are where you have to go out and find out about things. Um, you know, like you, you know, like you, you, you could go out in the world and find out how many species of pine tree live in North America. That's an empirical study. You can't study the concept of pine tree and then deduce from it how many species of pine tree there are. I mean, you could like make a estimation, probably, like knowing a lot about pine trees and maybe and living there. Yeah, but you couldn't. Yeah, there is a lot of theory, theoretical work that could be done in evolutionary theory, um, but fundamentally, it's an empirical science. Um, it's, it's in a radically different way from how you could f go figure out like 
how many types of number are there, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's rational numbers, irrational numbers, imaginary numbers, natural numbers, uh, integers, whole numbers, and things like that. There's fractions. So that's, uh, that's you're not going to go somewhere and discover new numbers by going to Antarctica, right? It's not going to happen. You have to create the numbers, right? Or define them, discover them, or something like yeah. that. So that is, so if we, and this is how people think of science these days, empirical or formal. So which of these two is metaphysics? Is it an empirical science or a formal science? Formal. That's what Aristotle would say. And because he thinks of it as a theoretical thing. But yet, physics is an empirical science, but it's theory, right? Is it? Yeah, physics is a theoretical science, but yet he would say that, I mean, physics is clearly an empirical science, no matter who's talking. But yet, Aristotle would say that, would put it in the same school or classification as math and metaphysics. He didn't really talk about empirical, formal, right? He didn't talk about that at all. Um, they just divided things up differently from how we do. So, and you know, I think that's the natural way to define it, is that it's a, it's a formal science or a, a priori science. But it's different from, it's different in that if you once you think about reverse engineering, if you're reverse engineering either an artificial or a naturally evolved system to find out how it works, mm -hmm. that's an empirical science, though. That's an empirical study. But if what if you're reverse engineering your own mind? That's empirical, too. So that this is a really weird thing. When you are in the modern world, you, you want to ask this question, which Aristotle wouldn't have thought of. This means that, you know, in, like, is, is math empirical in that you're discovering new kinds of numbers that a human could think? You're trying to see, okay, could we make sense of this kind of number? I don't know about that. That's kind of weird. But do you understand what I'm saying yeah. about about metaphysics? How like when you're reverse engineering a laptop, well then that's an empirical study. And if you're reverse engineering an animal or a plant, what's the definition of empirical? Um, it means you're the primary object of your study is something in the external world, and it's not like a number. You know, or like, uh, uh, like in logic, you can create a three-valued uh, logical system. Instead of true and false, you could have a third value, which is neither true nor false, right? And then you experiment with that and see, you know, what you can do with that. You know, and that's a theoretical, but also a formal science. And it's, it's prior to experience. Like, you don't have to go anywhere. Oh, yeah. the Okay. Oh, my favorite example is this. Check this out. You'll like this. So, have you ever heard of hyperspace? No. I mean, yeah, but, like, I don't know. Okay. So, uh, about a hundred and a little bit more than a hundred years ago, there were a couple of Russian mathematicians i forget their names but they published a few essays and maybe a whole book on hyperspatial geometry because okay so back with euclid euclid okay euclid sort of wrote the first book on geometry called the elements cool. okay so he i think he was around the same time as plato cool. and so he always just assumed that uh, the three angles of a uh, uh, 
oh, how am I going to do this? He made but certain assumptions. He made certain assumptions. Not too normal. Or on, like, a certain degree. Well, that all the... That when you add up all the angles of a triangle, they all add up to 180, yeah. right? So he couldn't... He never made explicit certain assumptions that so made that, that like inevitable. Well, the thing is, if if instead of being straight lines, the three uh, lines were curved through a higher dimension, then they could be different from 180. And so, like, if the triangle was on the surface of a globe then like these angles are not going to be 180, you know? I mean, if we draw a triangle here in this room, it's going to be 180, and there's no point in belaboring it, you know? If you draw it on, like, a ball, it's going to be... Yeah, but a triangle that goes from, like, Ecuador to Equatorial Guinea, at two of the corners, and then the other corner is the North Pole, Those are each of those corners is going to be 90 degrees. Well, actually, I don't know about the one at the North Pole, but these two down here are going to be 90 degrees, and there's definitely not going to be zero degrees left over at the North Pole. It's going to be more like yeah. something like 90 degrees. So these two guys thought, well, you know, we could do a whole geometry based on warped space. So it's not just two-dimensional geometry that could be warped. Three-dimensional geometry can be warped through a fourth spatial dimension. Cool. If we just imagine it. Is that like the fourth? The 40? The fourth what? Is that like 40? Mm-hmm. Well, most people think of time as the fourth dimension. But there could be multiple. It's merely an empirical fact that there's three spatial dimensions. And so what they did was they just published a whole book on like higher dimensional geometry. And they said, wow, we could do all this stuff. And it still works, right? Mm. And it's analogous to Euclid's work, but it just shows that you know Euclid is assuming a certain Newtonian space that we experience every day. But you know you could change those assumptions. And so some people went up to Carl Friedrich Gauss, who was the most prominent mathematician in the world, and they said, "What do you think about these Russian dorks who published this crazy book on?" imaginary hyperspace, right? Isn't that just insane? And Gauss said, well, you know, actually, I, uh, I wrote a similar work, uh, but I didn't have the guts to publish it because I knew people would put me down, right? And, uh, you know, I, I thought people would make fun of me. And, uh, but I totally give respect to uh, these two guys for publishing it because it's bang on correct. And so once people started experimenting with this mathematics, mm -hmm. they discovered that actually our space is warped. And that's what made possible relativity. And uh, we found out about it when we saw that all the uh, galaxies are going far away from us. And that the further away they are from us, the faster they're going. That can only be the case if our space is expanding through another higher dimension. It's not expanding through the three dimensions. It's expanding through another dimension. And uh, that's what it, it, it's. So anyway, we only found out that space is hyper by doing hyperspatial geometry. We couldn't have known it if those guys hadn't done it. Cool. So the thing is, the uh, working on theory can make uh, empirical science possible. And there, there's a weird give and take between them. So... What do you mean? How, how would it expand? Like, in this fourth? Oh, well, that, that'll... Like, I can imagine, like, okay, so we have, like, you know, 2D, it's gonna go, like, that way, and then we add a 3D, it's gonna go, like, you know, bigger yeah. bigger. Well, then what the heck is 4D? Well, you can't point to it in our three-dimensional space. It can only happen in a higher dimensional space, which our brains aren't equipped to conceptualize.
The only way you can conceptualize is, is indirectly by doing the math. You could program a computer that could conceptualize it. You can program any number of dimensions, a million dimensions, into a computer. And it would do the math perfectly. And you could find out, you could even program a robot to navigate through a hundred million dimensional space. And it would do it as if it were just the nor most normal thing possible. But a human would never be able to navigate through a hundred dimensional space or a hundred million or a hundred trillion dimensional space. So that's the, uh, the key thing. So, oh, well, wait, why do we start talking about that? Like, um... the, we're talking about mathematics as a theoretical and formal science as opposed to an empirical science. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's, that's kind of a weird thing. So anyway, but the core issue that we're talking about is that reverse engineering our mind is an empirical science. And yet if you looked at like it's not a it's no contradiction to say it does it doesn't does it contradict anything to say that uh, if we change certain aspects of Aristotle's metaphysics would it be a contradiction like if we said that 2 plus 2 equals 5 that would actually be a contradiction right mm -hmm. There would be a contradiction between the answer of that problem and the terms that we use to define the other side of the equation, yeah. right? Um, it wouldn't be obvious. It might be hard for a normal person to prove it, but yet there would be a contradiction there. But is there anything that Aristotle says that would be contradictory if you changed it? Probably. Like, uh, like what's a thing that could be changed without contradiction? Well, that you know how like you said like evolution smarter than you. Well, uh, I'm pretty sure this like he's thought through this like so much probably. Yeah. I know that he's probably already made contradictions because nobody can like actually do that. But like you know, he spent like basically his whole life on this. Like he has one contradiction. This. Oh, who Aristotle did? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, you could probably think of something now. It's a different time, you guys. Yeah. Things, but he's probably gone through this like so many times. Oh, maybe. Yeah, well, I know. A lot of people think they're smarter than Aristotle and they've proven wrong time after time. But, uh, oh, okay. I have an interesting. This is actually the big question, right? Mm -hmm. Look at the three laws of thought. Which are? Uh, their identity. A is A. Oh, and then... Non-contradiction, and then excluded middle. So A is A. That's create. That was invented by Socrates, who said that no matter what you're talking about, you have to talk about the same thing every time you mention it. Mm -hmm. And you can't, you know, if you're talking about something different but using the same word, well, then either you should make that clear or you should just change what you say. That's Socrates. And then Aristotle comes up with uh, non-contradiction, which means A is not not A. Mm -hmm. And then excluded middle, which for any A, A is either B or not B. Yeah. So those are the three laws of thought. So is discovering the three laws of thought is that an empirical discovery, or is that a formal discovery? Empirical? How so? You're not really... Well, it, like, originates in the brain, like, whenever you think something that's, like, in your brain, mm -hmm. or in your mind, I guess. But then you can, like, say it, and then it's, like... You know, like you could, like it's the three laws of thought, not the three laws of speaking. Yeah. So they do help you speak. Yeah. And they, like a lot, like they're yeah. not gonna, like, if you took away speaking, then they wouldn't change. But if you took away thought, then you could change. Yeah, that's true. You know, at first I assumed that they were formal principles, kind of like 
you know, the higher level principles of mathematics and logic. Um, but um, now I think it's an empirical discovery because you're talking about reverse engineering the brain. What are the most general principles built into any computational or cognitive system, right? Um, making decisions off of given information and not randomly. Oh, yeah, well, that's what, so, that's what the three laws of thought are for, right? There you go, okay. And then, um, they're not always... What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, it has nothing to do with that. Wait, no. Well, like, for example, do, does this laptop uh, follow the three laws of thought? Yeah. Would it have to? Yeah. Like, it's not going to show you something completely different. From this. Yeah. Like, if it didn't follow, it would just be broken. That's true. Like, to even get off the ground, you would have to, like, for example, the recording that we're making right now. That recording is a file, and that file has a name. Well, we're gonna have to, like ponies and stuff, so that would make nothing. Yeah, and that the name of that file. I mean, if I don't create a name that's useful to us, the computer would just make a name up of random letters and numbers mm -hmm. that only makes sense to that computer. And in fact, that's what the computer does. The computer itself. Invisible to us has just a bunch of random names and numbers or letters and numbers that are the name of that file and That name of that file has to be different from the name of every other file on the computer if you have two files with the same name then You just don't have a functional computer Right and that's that to me now that's an empirical discovery that's an empirical principle of the functioning of a system that exists in the external world. And it's not that different from how a biologist reverse engineers a living system to find out how it works. And so um, that's why I think they're, they're empirical discoveries. But they're discovered, or at least they were first discovered by self-engineering or self-reverse engineering, right? A, a mind of a certain species that did it to itself. And now that we've done it with ourselves, we can do it with laptops, we can do it with aliens if they ever land. I mean, they're never going to get to our star system and build spaceships or even talk to each other unless they follow these three laws. So in that sense, these three laws are like laws of living just any cognitive system. So they're part of cognitive science. They're not just part of metaphysics. And so like cognitive science is a science that like you can go get a degree in cognitive science at Carleton. It's an empirical science. It's like study of what? Uh, it's the, the study of cognitive systems, which could be a human, it could be an animal, it okay. could be uh, AI, you know? Uh, so it's it's made of the overlap of philosophy, psychology, computer programming, and something else, I forget what. But like, it's a new science pretty much in the past 20 years. So that's interesting, I think that's neat. But this is different, this is a different conception from what Aristotle has of his science. And I wonder what he would say if he were here. You know, if he could, what he would say about the whole empirical thing. Um, and so this means that um, the, the definitions that he gives of what a substance is, it could be different. It could be slightly different. Be a normal modern philosopher? Oh, I don't know. I don't think he would. Modern philosophy is messed up. He would completely destroy modern philosophy. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that like now that we have like a lot of science and 
quests, mm-hmm. myths and stuff, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think that does kind of mess with people's, like, imagination and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one reason why modern science is apparently so bad, and yeah. modern philosophy is apparently so bad. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, what we, uh, so now that we have this conception of the, uh, the difference between the empirical aspect of the science and the formal aspect, uh, now we can, when we look at book lambda, we can see that this is different. So, in book Gamma and Zeta, he was doing a legit sort of cognitive reverse engineering of his own mind, right? And I think everything he says in there stands. But then in Book Lambda, it's different, right? So, like, he starts out with normal Book Zeta level stuff, and we'll just call it Book Zeta stuff, right? So he starts out with that, and he starts out with, okay, we're talking about substance. That's how he starts out with Book Lambda. And he says, okay, so substance is prior. And it's prior in terms of time, definition, and prior in terms of nature and being. So what is first, the heap or the unit? And he says, well, the unit is first. So that's an assumption that he makes. That's a questionable assumption. You could you could program your mind to... Wait, didn't you say that there was like... Wait, which one started? I guess was it the mortal then? Well, you know how like everything started? Or like, I don't know, there's like... When it's love, there's like... Everything's in a big heap. Yep. Doesn't that make it start out as a heap? Oh, yeah. Well, so in Empedocles' work, um, oh, that's the, two, the two extremes are equal. One is the extreme of the unit, or unity. The other is the extreme of disunity, or heapness, or heapitude, I don't know, the heaps. So there's four heaps of the four elements, right? And then on the other extreme, there's a unit of the whole cosmos. So he thinks that they're equal. But Aristotle says, no, you can't have two extremes that are completely equal. One of them is going to be primary. And Aristotle just says the unit is primary. And the heaps are heaps of units. Because one is primary over two. Well, yeah, that's true. Two is two ones. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, to get any other number, you have to have a unit. And then you multiply that unit by so many times, right? And uh, so he just assumes that the unit is primary and then heaps are secondary, right? And so that a unit is when you put form onto a heap. So in a sense, and he agrees he admits this in many places that the heap exists prior to the unit, but that's and the unity is imposed on the heap. But he gives various, uh, you know, arguments why he thinks units are first by nature, if not always in time, and there has to be a unit first. And natural unities either are eternal or they. They're created by another of like kind, and the form comes from the previous generation of that sort of unit, right? So unity is always prior. In the heavens, it's prior because they're eternal, but on earth, it's prior because there was always someone else before you, your parents. Their unity gives you your unity, right? So that's his thing. But then, so that's that's reasonable. Like, you could... If you wanted to, you could say, okay, well, what would happen if we did a metaphysics that started with heaps and said that heaps were primary? You could try that, right? And some people have done stuff like this. In the modern era, some people have said, well, why don't we make relationships primary? And then have the relationships define who's in the relation, 
right? So according to Aristotle, relation is a category that's secondary to the primary thing, which is the substance. Mm -hmm. And so, but some people have thought that, well, relationships might be primary. That's in the 20th century. That's a whole other ball of wax. We won't get into that. But you could do it. You could do it, right? And then see if it's possible. But you would have to use that to make sense of your life. Like, that's an empirical study, right? Like, are you, is it going to be like defining a new kind of geometry of hyperspace, you know, or something like that? It's not going to be the same sort of study as that. You'd have to, like, get a bunch of people and see if they could be relationalists, you know, if they could operate in the world with a relational ontology. Well, like, um, people, let's say, don't have to have, like, friends or, like, a table or, like, anything to, like, be. They have to have, like, a mind. Yeah. Which is them. Yeah. And then they get to just be. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, yeah. They're not going to think much because they're not going to have, like, the language relations. Yeah. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? That's true. I mean, you're exactly, you're arguing against this. Um, and we don't have space to, like, hash out this argument. But I'm just saying that it's a possibility. And people have written entire books on trying to do this because they're trying to think, well, what's been, maybe there's something wrong. You know, maybe we should try something different. So anyway, but that's, but I think everything that Aristotle has said is good up until this point right now. And then Aristotle says something. Okay, there's three kinds of substance. There's the generable substance. That's us. And mushrooms and sunflowers, right? We're generable substances, right? That like means we... Random things? Yeah, well, no, generable substances are substances which can be generated and then can be destroyed. Okay. Okay. And then there's eternal substances, of which there are two kinds. One that has matter and can move, and those are the planets and stars. Mm -hmm. And then there's eternal substances which have no matter and which are unmoved, but which can move the planets, and those are the gods. So this is where he gets into trouble because this assumes, I mean, sure, you could theorize, oh, maybe there is, you know, these other things. It is logically possible that there could be these things that he's talking about, but he hasn't discovered it. But then he goes on from there to pretend like he's discovered these things. I mean, his theory is the best theory that he could come up with. I don't deny that. Like, no one could come up with anything until Galileo, right? <laughs> yeah, until many years later. But the thing is, that's the problem. He's not, he's made his first mistake. And he's, you know, so now he's getting into physics and astrophysics and other empirical things. And he's not dealing with the functioning of his cognitive system, his well, don't mind. Don't people like say he's wrong and then he like goes on and proves them wrong? Yeah, but the thing is, they didn't have enough uh, knowledge back then to actually confirm or deny his theory. There was no, there was no other theory that could really do, that could really save the phenomena. Is the phrase they use that could explain why. There are these planets which just keep on going around in something like a circle for like thousands of years and never slow down or speed up or get tired or anything like that. You know, and nothing on Earth behaves like that. Like, you know, I don't, I haven't seen anything go around a circle for five minutes on Earth, you know? I mean, at the science museum, they saw it, like, literally she was telling us how to how the planets sun yeah and they have, she had this little magnet i think and yeah. like there was like a little metal racetrack that it like raced around on yeah. for like a few, a few minutes until she just like decided that everybody should probably stop yeah. it wasn't getting stolen anything yeah so that was cool 
Also, there's like little parts of us that don't know each other. Like they're called, but like. Atoms. <laughs> you mean electrons? <laughs> yeah, electrons. You got like a five mile radius or something? Oh, five miles. Wow. That's like big. Yeah. That's not an atom. Yeah, I don't know if that works. Okay, well. But well, I mean, maybe atoms do that too. But what I'm saying is, when Aristotle gets into trouble in Book Lambda, it seems like all of his mistakes correspond to where he leaves the reverse cognitive engineering aspect of his science, and he gets into astrophysics, right? And he gets into physics, right? And so that's uh, something which... Uh, I mean, he actually makes a lot of good points, right? He makes a lot of good points about how there must be a fundamental circular motion that's eternal and things like that. But he gets into trouble when he, like, has to explain circular motion, explain the circular motion of the solar system. And, uh, you know, he gets into a lot of problems. But I think he... Uh, he does say a lot of good stuff, and I think that, uh, well, we went over what was good about it, that work back then in the last episode. But what I'm just saying, all I wanted to say was that there's two things that he's doing. One, he gets in trouble with when he tries to do astrophysics or cosmology, and the other, he's definitely on target when he's talking about, well, like, what's our cognitive system do? What's its fundamental, like, sort of programming? Anyway, so that's, uh, that's my big thing. I, I, I think it's really interesting that uh, he's, when you look at his science from the perspective of engineering and whatnot, it's pretty, an, an empirical versus formal science. It's an empirical science. It's really weird how this is. And it's that's an unexpected uh, possibility. So anyway, I don't know if that undermines his thing, but I think he's on target. And that's all we'll say about metaphysics for quite some time. In our next episode, we're not going to do any metaphysics at all. We're going to do practical science. And that's going to be a complete other world. And this is another part of Aristotle which is really popular now. And it's pretty amazing. Uh, in fact, that's how Aristotle came back into popularity was primarily through ethics. Because modern ethical systems can't agree with each other. Neither of them can defeat the other. And they both yield really crazy results that don't make sense. So that's why Aristotle is really popular now in ethics. And only after his ethics came into popularity did people really start thinking about his metaphysics again. And now it's popular again, too. And uh, so that's what we'll do. We said a lot about theory and practice and how Aristotle's relation to these two was difficult. But Aristotle's really good in, in the realm of practice, and he's pretty brilliant. So that's what we'll be talking about, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, and we'll see you next time. Yay! All right. Bye. Thanks, Adam.